Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Now's the time to save 30% on wedding jewelry. Only on BlueNile.com. Make sure your wedding ring is the one with your pick of diamond and lab-grown diamond bands. All hand-finished and graded for excellence. Or surprise her with something blue she'll love for life, like a stunning pair of sapphire earrings. Blue Nile's jewelry experts are available 24-7 to help, from fit questions to style advice. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Welcome to the CollectingCars.com podcast with Chris Harris and Edward Lovett. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Collecting Cars podcast. Today with me is Andrew Frankel, one of the UK's best motoring writers, historic racer and also quite good pal of mine. We've actually moved out of London for the day to be with Andrew down in the Y Valley because he's been a bit under the weather for the last week. But being a trooper, he said he's going to roll out and chat with me. He is my go-to pub banter person, really, Andrew, so this could degenerate. Um, so welcome to the podcast. Thank you very um, much. Uh, I also need to get the standard stuff out. I am at Harris Monkey. This is at Collecting Cars. Edward Lovett sadly can't be here. He has to go to a meeting because he's the suit involved in all of this. Andrew's handles are on Twitter at Frankel Andrew. Close. No, at, 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 at uh, Twitter is at Andrew underscore Frankel. Instagram is Frankel Andrew. And most importantly, um, a really great little venture he's got going with a friend of ours called Dan Prosser is something called Drive Nation. Go to Instagram and have a look at that. That's basically car news, reviews, opinion uh, in, in bite-sized chunks on Instagram. It's taking off nicely. 20,000 followers now? Something like that, getting there, yeah. Um, so go and have a look at that. And that is at... That is at Drive Nation underscore because right. somebody had already got Drive Nation. <laughs> well, um, so that's the housekeeping out of the way. Right, before we get involved in anything else... We need to discuss this race yesterday, okay? So, um, we are... This will be broadcast a few days after the Canadian Grand Prix. But as you'll know, yesterday uh, there was an incident during the Grand Prix during which Sebastian Vettel left the circuit with uh, Lewis Hamilton in hot pursuit. You could say he was pressured into a mistake. He rejoined the circuit and uh, has been penalised five seconds for rejoining in an unsafe manner. That altered the results, meant Lewis took... Uh, a somewhat hollow victory um, and we've seen all sorts of shenanigans since and it's generated lots of debate. Um, Andrew, let me tell you now before we begin, 
Um, you cut him, he bleeds Marinello. Well, I do when it comes to racing, and it's really, really strange, and I've never really quite understood why, because I think I can, I know I can, I can be completely objective about the road car products, and I think I've probably been as, as tough on the stuff that they've, on the not good stuff that they've made over the last 30 years I've been doing this as, as anyone. But when it comes to racing, all my objectivity just can't goes out the window. I just want them to win, and I don't care who's in the other cars, I just want Ferrari to win. And I sit down, and however... You know, strangely, Ferrari behave however many, time, many times they threaten to leave Grand Prix racing and, you know, throw all the toys out the pram. You know, next race, I'm sitting there and I just want them to win. Uh, now, I know that you are a, are a massive Lewis fan. My, um, my sort of, uh, the way I've looked at Lewis has gone really, really up and down. I'm on a big Lewis up at the moment. I think he's fantastic. A couple of years ago, I really wasn't sure because I think, to me, it's as much about how you behave out of the car as in it. And to me, that counts for much more than world championships. Um, but, you know, I, I just think that what happened yesterday was more than anything else. I think it was just a really, really bad thing for Formula One, which, let's face it, is in enough trouble as it is. And the one thing, that, you know, I think we could be looking at a complete Mercedes-Benz whitewash this year. I mean, if there was a circuit at which Ferrari had a chance, um, I would say that Canada, with a combination of long straights and slow corners, was probably as good as any they were going to get to go to. And for it to be taken away like that, where, you know, quite clearly, to me at least, you know, Vettel, you know, I, th- I don't know what he was doing. He's probably doing 150 miles an hour at that time, you know, on the grass. You don't really have an awful lot of choice over the trajectory of the car. Um, and he came back on and, you know, there was no contact. Um, and I just think that this was Formula One saying to itself, well, actually, we've got a chance, of a really, really good race. We've got a chance of changing the narrative a little bit. Let's just not bother. It's strange, isn't it? Because... The um, back at the uh, FIA, the person involved um, in, in making the decisions, the steward for for you know drivers' behaviour, conduct, was Emmanuel Piro, guy that you know. So this, I mean, it's it's an odd decision, isn't it? You wouldn't have expected, and he's a driver's driver. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how much time they get to make the decision. I don't know how much pressure they feel under. It was an odd decision, and we're all capable of making odd decisions. You know, I've I've known Emmanuelli. I don't know him well, but I've known him for a few years. He is the nicest, fairest, most decent bloke you could ever come across in this sport. I mean, the, a, a person less likely to have an angle than him, I can't imagine. Um, but I don't understand why he concluded the way that he did. Okay, so let, let's let's slightly view the anatomy of this incident. I'm going to play devil's advocate at times. Um, and uh, you'll know my position on this at the end of it. Um, first of all, we've got 20 laps to go or whatever, um, and we're gloves off. We've got we've got arguably the two best drivers in F1 in the two best machines. I think that's open for debate. I'm not sure Vettel is one of the two best drivers in Formula 1. I'm sure that no, Lewis, I don't, I don't I'm think sure is. Lewis is the best, but I think, I think Sebastian's been exposed a bit in the last couple of years, and I think at the moment, the way the sport, the way sport's configured you're judged by how few mistakes you make. And and sadly, Sebastian has made lots of mistakes in the last couple of years. By the by, he's a four-time world champion. He has a level of skill that neither of us could even dream of having. Um, he's under pressure. He's following another car. There's a reduction downforce. It's a back marker. Goes into that sort of flick-flack right-left. Canada as a circuit, by the way, terrifies me. Just looks like a place where you can just have a crash at every corner and it would hurt. Um, back of the car steps out. He somehow ends up on the grass. I mean, in itself, we should be celebrating the fact that on the grass, on slick tyres with a thousand horsepower, he's gathered thing up. I think most mortals would have ended up interfacing with something quite solid and be out of the race. You and I would have just been off in the wall. So the bloke saved it. 
and, and the speeds of which we're looking at corrections, if you watch it full time, you can't even see his hands move, can you? And he, he gets back on the circuit and then produces, you know, the ever-decreasing gap for Lewis Hamilton. Now, you know, Lewis, being the racer, sees his opportunity, sees the right-hand side, go to the outside and, and thinks, I'm going for it. And, um, and that gap closes. And the only way to stop the accident is for Lewis to back out of it. Um, I'm a huge Lewis fan, but I don't know what else Sebastian Vettel could have done. There's, there's a lot of discussion around the fact that he looks into, right into his mirror, but we're, you know, we're, we're dealing with fractions of a second here. And I think he'd do that instinctively anyway. What I don't understand is that ultimately, when you're the bloke that's finally pushed the guy in front to making a mistake, which occasionally we get to do, and it's a great feeling because you think, haha, gotcha, I've been waiting for this for a while, I've been pushing you. That's not, you haven't completed the job then. You've got to still get past them. And if they only leave you a bit of room, then that's your decision whether you go for it or not. And if you go for it and it doesn't work, it's kind of it's kind of tough cookie. It was probably a bad call. So I don't really understand what else Vettel could have done. I'd love to be sitting here saying that I think Lewis deserved that, but I just don't think he did. I, th- I think also Lewis has proved himself to be a masterful strategist in the last couple of years. That's what's been really impressive about Lewis. He's gone from being this impetuous individual that made decisions based on an outcome two minutes ahead. Whereas now you get the feeling he's looking at the longer game. And that's that's the mark of a true champion when they're looking at sort of legacy results. And the language of Lewis's car said to me, I had a go 10 laps ago. It didn't work. I'll settle for second because I'm still going to win this world championship. That's what the language of his car said to me. So the fact that he had a bit of a pop and it didn't work, that was that really. It was done. I don't think that Lewis actually did... You know, I don't think there was much more that Lewis could have done. I mean, I don't think he did anything other than what you would have expected him to do in those situations, which was try to maximise, you know, the most of a situation which he had, you know, quite rightly um, engineered. I don't think that there was uh, anything else that Vettel could have done. I mean, the car was travelling so fast, it's come back onto the track. Um, I've heard people saying, oh, we should have kept left. I just don't even, you know, I don't presume to imagine for a moment how you would even go about ensuring that. Well, the track is dirty on the left as well. People, what you don't see on on. On, on TV coverage is, is that is that the circuit when it's evolved and rubbered in is usable but if you're off that you you literally you're like you're on ice I mean to me it was a classic racing incident except it wasn't even an incident and that is why you know if there had been I don't know some kind of contact or you know Lewis had lost a bit of front wing or something and, and had been disadvantaged then uh, I don't know maybe that would be grounds for looking at it but there wasn't even any there was nothing at all and I think to penalise him and to affect I mean, this, this, it wasn't a five seconds penalty given that the, the way the cars have been running for as long as they've been running that was a demotion it wasn't a five second penalty it was a demotion from first to second place and I just I just thought it was all all wrong I just a word about Lewis I think you're absolutely right I think what has changed so much about him um, is that the way that he thinks under pressure now is just unlike anything I've ever I think I've ever seen in any racing driver. He he has the fight of a true racing driver with a brain of a sort of a, of a louder. The way he can think under pressure, the way he can position his car. I mean, last season I'm struggling to think of a mistake he made. Did he spin anything last season? He, he might did. have done in quali, or I don't think he did in quali. He might have done in practice. I can't remember him making a significant mistake in any race for the duration of last season. And that, you know, regardless of results, must make him unique among the entire F1 grid at the moment. Yeah, he's 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 dead impressive. So two points on the on on this penalty then, and, and where and where it sits with Formula One. Whether you agree with these or not. First is, I think, the morning after the night before, if people are discussing a penalty more than they are the drivers and the cars and the race, 
than the sports making some big mistakes. You shouldn't be talking about you sh- the conversation shouldn't be around you know the the drivers steward. It should be around the two great pugilists we but saw. But th- that's that, I mean that's the sadness, isn't it? Because like, to me, I, you know, the people that I speak to at the moment aren't talking about Formula One very much at the no. moment because there's you know they, you know we are as I said earlier we are looking at a potential whitewash. And the moment that people, there is a topic to actually talk about, it's completely negative. And it's about how Formula One has yet again, from you know a pretty, from their point of view, ideal PR set of circumstances, i.e. something other than a Mercedes about to win a race, have managed to pull the rug out from under themselves. And the other one is, just imagine if, if you were to have a set of rules and sub-clauses around the area of overtaking, rejoining a circuit, whatever this grey area is we're talking about. And you applied them to MotoGP now. Can you imagine? I mean, you see as many overtaking manoeuvres in one lap of a MotoGP race as you do in an entire Formula One race. All season. Yeah. Just imagine if you had that level of scrutiny presiding over potential overtakes, undertakes, the legalities of overtaking in MotoGP. It'd be busy, wouldn't they? But, but that's the entire point of having someone like Emanuele making those decisions now as i said i don't understand why he reached the conclusion that he did but it is to produce a degree of discretion um where you know a sensible person who's been there and done it himself um can say no that's just a racing incident and yes technically you, they may have infringed some rule um but there's there's something bigger than that going on here so we're going to let it go unbelievable so that well, i think we'll leave formula one, formula one alone for a bit because it can maybe get quite depressed but my, my my worry about Formula One is that my children don't like it. They have any interest in it. And do, they, do they like Formula E? No, they don't. They just don't have they don't have any interest in a sport that lasts that long, takes up half a Sunday, and not much happens. See, that's quite interesting. I mean, your oldest is of the sort of age where Formula E should be coming onto the radar, um, and if it's not, I mean. That's the sort of age category that they're after. They're after the, you know, the long-term voters. Um, and if it's not engaging them, then that is, that is, it's not you or me that they're after at all. I just feel that Formula One is slightly meandering towards a Kodak moment, you know, where, where just when it, when it ends for it, it could end overnight really quickly because you, it, it's absolute, its profitability is based on um, the support of car manufacturers. Um, the broadcasting rights go down in value every single year and it's it's completely missed a generation you know there is a there's a generation of young people out there now that neither care about it or are interested in it and one day you could just wake up and find that that, that you know it, that mercedes decided to go in the same year and ferrari thinks you know what, we're going to go into esports and before you know it it's it's not there what it, what could happen of course is that it, you know formula one um was obviously never configured that way it was originally about racing teams teams like mclaren about williams teams that existed to race not teams that existed to sell road cars or make fizzy drinks or 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 anything like that um and i think as we've seen in the wec um if you have a sport it's a sort of faustian pact isn't it where you are dependent upon the money of people whose primary business is not that is not racing cars then you are always at risk of that money going away yeah that, that was always bernie's line wasn't it car makers they come and go teams are permanent and i he, he's right you also get the feeling that if if bernard had been around yesterday he wouldn't have allowed that to happen <laughs> he oh. would probably have said no 
We need a red car to win for once. Yeah, it would have been good, wouldn't it? Um, right, road cars. So your day job is still to review far more road cars than I do. You've been doing it much longer than me as well. Um, and outside your house at the moment is one of the worst things I've ever seen. <laughs> what, d- d- You're not talking about my daughter's fit toy. I go, no, I'm not. That's th- I wouldn't say that. But um, the front end of the BMW X7 is a study in everything that's gone wrong with car design. Discuss. Yeah, I think you're fairly. I think you're fairly close to it. I think it is, uh, and what I find particularly difficult about it is that it is based on something that we all used to love. Yeah. I mean, the BMW grill. Um, you know, when I grew up with, you know, E21s and E28s, and I just, I just used to love that. It was such a great lesson in, uh, in I think the Ponzi term is design language, um, how to establish an identity for a car and to take it. Um, and to turn it into what you have on that. Um, I, I don't know what the thinking is. There must be some very clever marketing people behind it thinking, you know, this makes, because there's more of it and it's bigger and it's more in your face, people will recognise us more and therefore somehow want to buy our products more. But I don't understand it and I hope it doesn't last. It looks like a massive bum to me. Uh, that, that's my sophisticated deconstruction of, of the style. I don't understand it either. I thought four headlights and that grill was one of the great pieces of design and so identifiable that you could spot a BMW so far in the distance. But the gradual creep's been coming since about 1980, 88. Can you remember the outcry when BMW launched the V12 E32 7 Series, the 750i and the IL? And the V12 got the... a slightly wider, yes, the wider kidney grill. grill. Yes. And everyone, everyone that basically couldn't handle 911s becoming better than the last one just got out of bed. The Cognoscenti went, well, this is outrageous. We can't have a wider kidney grill. It looks particularly wrong. And it was actually an inch wider than the other one or less, half a mil wider. But it's got worse now. It's, it's, it's got massive. I wonder whether it sort of harkens back. I mean, you know, back in the day, um, you know, cars like that would have had to have had massive radiator grills because yeah. they needed massive radiators because they needed an awful lot of cooling. Um, and, you know, this is something that obviously Rolls-Royce has done i presume we're going to come on to the cullinan fairly shortly <laughs> but um yeah i don't I, I don't know to me it has to fit as an integral integral part of the design and it just doesn't and it just it just looks off particularly the relationship um between you have the, these very narrow lights and then you have this massive grill um so li- lights are becoming smaller because led technology means you don't need as big a surface area lenses and all that kind of thing yeah grills get bigger to me it just increasingly looks like all cars have a have a worse and worse case of conjunctivitis and are screaming louder. They just get narrower eyes and bigger mouths. Yes. So, so actually, the metaphor is they're all crying for help <laughs> because. Um, and, I, and maybe I can I can use that as a really cheesy segue. The X7 is a is an amazing piece of technology. It's a it's a it's a great big vast SUV that's packed. Is it forty eight volt? I presume it is like they all are now. Is it? And they and I it it has turbochargers and multiple cylinders and will carry seven people in huge amounts of comfort at 155 miles an hour, I'm sure. But it, 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 it's obsolete before it's even been sold, isn't it, that car? That is, that's the car we'll look back on in 20 years' time and say, oh my Lord, did we get to that place? Yeah, 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 but you need to be careful with this because I've been saying exactly this for at least 20 years. You know, ever since the, I don't know what started it, I mean, X5 or even before that, you know, Rav Force, whatever you know, the, the rise of the recreational SUV or the all-purpose SUV, 
the idea that something that is bigger, higher, heavier, more profligate, um, is somehow also better, um, is something that I've been struggling with all this time. I've been predicting the downfall of these cars for 20 years, and, and I have to therefore concede that I've been completely wrong. But not just not just the SUV. I just mean the the that configuration of vehicle, internal combustion engine, vast amounts of weight, very expensive, ugly. I, I, I get the feeling we might... I do think we're at the end of it. I do think that if you if you bought... What's that, £100,000, that thing? Uh, with extras, yeah, over. So £100,000 family car. I mean, that's not something... That's not for holidays and holidays. It's an everyday car to rival a Range Rover or a, or a GL or whatever you call it these days. Yeah. Um, and... If you bought that now, so you wouldn't pay a hundred thousand for it. You'd pay twenty five thousand probably as a deposit, and then BMW Financial Services would relieve you of fifteen hundred a month or something like that. They have to insure it and all the other stuff, and you'd be on a three year deal. I think that within three years, the rapid electrification of of everyday vehicles could mean that that thing's worth twenty grand. So you could be staring at one of the worst negative equity situations of your life. I th- and I think, I think that's where we're at the moment. I think the tipping point is coming with vehicles like that. Yeah, I think the whole electrification thing is, I mean, the one thing that I have become convinced of, uh, I think we're going to have a really wobbly two, maybe three years. But once the infrastructure is there, um, which it will, it will be, then I think that people's concerns about range um, and recharging time will go away. Because I think you will be able to drive from London to Edinburgh with one 20 minute stop in the in, in the middle, which you'd probably want to take anyway. And at which stage, you know, it's you know, you, you, you've cracked it. Um, so what happens to that thing out there? What's well, the value in it? Well, OK, so it's probably not worth very much after that, um, particularly that one, which is diesel powered as well. Um, so you can imagine um, where that's going to go. But the thing that I still struggle with, in fact, there are lots of things about uh, electrification that I struggle with um, from you know, the true emissions um, and the true uh, outputs of all these things, from the, the way they're made to the way that they're recycled to you know, child labour mining cobalt in DRC, which goes into all these batteries of all these cars and our smartphones as well. But also the mass, you know. You know, you think that's heavy. You know, do an electric one of those and see what you come up with. Yeah. You know, that's going to be heavier still. Um, so, you know, I, th- I think, you know, clearly cars like that with very old-fashioned internal combustion engines are, if not on... I don't think they're on their last legs. I think they'll be with us for a while because I think people will take time to adopt. Um, and I don't buy the narrative that cars are going to get lighter. Um, I think with increasing electrification, even if it's just with hybrid drives, I think they're going to get heavier. Um, which depresses me. Um, so I think, you know, in time, cars like that will be seen as dinosaurs. But as I said, I've been saying this for a very long time. Yeah, I, I, I do have sleepless nights about it now because I don't quite understand where it's going. Um, selfishly, it, it has an impact on the way we earn a living because I, I sell passion about cars and, and I, I have to be real. I can't be false. And I don't have an awful lot of passion for electric cars at the moment. I'm trying very hard. Model 3 is the one that, the Tesla Model 3 is the one that I've enjoyed the most. But even that, once I'd shut the door and walked away from it, I didn't turn around and look at it. It was just another very impressive device. I think, I think there are two things going on here. Um, I think, firstly, I can see absolutely, um, what was I driving the other day? I-Pace, you know, best electric car I've driven. Um, and I was also in the Audi e-tron which is a very credible device for doing that particular job. But to me, it's not driving. Um, 
it's, it's a family hold all that goes from one place to another. And I can see electric cars doing that job very well. What I can't see, and I have seen, you know, I've spoken as you have, to a lot of very, very clever, very senior engineers, is how you make an electric car interesting to drive, fun to drive. I, I couldn't tell you how uninterested I am in the fact that, you know, the, the, these electric concept cars come out now with 2,000 horsepower. To me, that is absolutely not the way to go. It's not what it's about. It's about driver interaction. It's about all the stuff that you and I bang on in the pub about relentlessly. And I can't see it happening. Um, I also think that there is a, a qualitative thing going on there. Um, you, know, you and I love wearing bits of engineering on our wrists. You know, things with cogs and wheels and little springs yeah. and that sort of thing. Because It's not because we think that a mechanical watch tells the time very well. You and I very well know that they don't. It's because we just like having that engineering around with us. We just like being in touch with that sort of thing and the passion that went into its design and its skill and its knowledge. And I just don't see that. I can't see people getting revved up at about an electric car in the same way. And the in the same way they didn't get, they don't, no one gets revved up about, you know, has anybody ever shown you the electric watch they have on their wrist? It's never happened to me. Yeah, it was interesting. Uh, Neil, who's sitting with us doing some recording at the moment, um, we, w we went to drive the 919 um, last year, the crazy Le Mans winning Porsche. And the, yeah, the crown jewels of that project um, are or is an electric motor that Porsche developed in-house. That's the front motor, um, the most compact, efficient motor ever fitted into any kind of motor vehicle and quite top secret. Um, you know, it produces, what was it, 500 horsepower or something crazy. I mean, it's a, and, it, and it really isn't very big. And they ushered us into a room to see this motor. And uh, excuse this in front of the family viewers, I just couldn't give a shit. What, you know, if it had been like a one and a half litre V12, I basically would have had a trouser tent and I couldn't, have, you know, but they, they ushered us into this room and said, it's here. And I was like, I've got a coffee machine. Because I just, that it's just a cylinder, isn't it? That it's a really strange thing. I was fascinated by what it could do and what effect it might have on the propulsion of the vehicle. But the object itself just didn't care. I mean, by stark staring contrast, I can remember going to a test track in Japan, um, to Chigi, I think. Uh, Never say that again when I've got a mouthful. Sorry, to Chigi. <laughs> Um, and Honda were they're bringing a load of stuff over for the Festival of Speed and so they had this day where they wheel it all out and they run them around just to make sure they're all functioning properly before they get on the boat or however they get over here and they wheeled out a motorbike I know nothing about motorcycles at all but this one it was a 125 with six cylinders yes and it revved to over 20,000 and I think it was built in 1964 <laughs> And there was I, there was all this stuff around and all I wanted to do was dribble over a motorcycle I knew nothing whatever about because I just thought about, you know, how big are the, I just wanted to see a piston. What's the speed of it? What's the speed? What's the power <laughs> output? What's it like? What? We, and then they fired the thing up and it sounded utterly insane. And, you know, it's just the sort of stuff that, you know, that I live for. But does that say more about you and me than it does about the stuff they're pouring over? Is it just a generational thing and are our children um going to grow up equally passionate about stuff which is yeah of I, no I, interest or relevance we, to we us will at all? we will be laughed at in a 50 years time people like you and i as being wasteful dinosaurs and i'm slightly ashamed of that but i can't i'm not going to hide my passions and i and to have something that burns resources as quickly as that motorcycle engine does and is and emits such horrible poisons into the atmosphere and all of those things i can't defend that but I can't 
I can't not celebrate it either. I have to have to celebrate it because I just think I love the preposterous engineering that's gone into a needless object. I just I love that. I really do. And I love that when when we look back in you know, we'll be judged so badly by future generations, we really will. And we used to get super excited. In fact, the reason for our existence was based around the fact that, you know, someone would bring out a four valve head for a hot hatchback and give us an extra twenty horsepower. I mean the scheme of life is it is embarrassing. Yeah, boy, it was exciting, wasn't it? <laughs> Didn't you want to drive it? I did. And I, I but I I think we'll be judged harshly. So you began your writing career at Autocar when? nineteen ninety or was it? Nineteen eighty eight. Eighty eight. Day after Jaguar and Lamont. What did you do before that? <laughs> uh, thank you for asking. Um quite a quite a few things. So um I sort of bypassed the whole university thing and um and when by, you had, by, by choice? Uh, well, by, by indolence, mainly. <laughs> um, and uh, when you are in that position, and if you are in a position to, um, the only way you can survive with any kind of credibility towards go and be, I think the phrase is something in the city, um, So, which is what I did. And I was very briefly a bond dealer, and I was then a commodity broker. It might have been the other way around. Um, but I lasted about six months in each job before. During my, those six months, you did make an appearance in a national newspaper. Oh, yes. Thank you for reminding me of that. Yes, Andy Frankel, 21, commodity broker. Mail on Sunday, approximately <laughs> 1987. And uh, anyone, wants, anyone wants to go and look it up, it was in the colour supplement under the title of Who Ray Henry Ate My Goldfish. Uh, this was... Who Ray Henry... <laughs> Um, that was the subject of the story. It wasn't actually me, and I've not yet uh, had the delight of eating a goldfish. But and, uh, it was just some um, some stupid scavenger hunt uh, that I went on in a Mark One MR Two with my with my girlfriend, um, which I remember more for the fact that the first thing we had to collect on day one was a huge lump of goat's cheese. Um, which she refused to have in the boot of the MR2 with her ball gown. So I had to live in the cockpit for a week in the middle of the summer, driving through France in an unair-conditioned MR2 with half a pound of goat's cheese. And it is absolutely no lie to say from that day to this, I have not touched the stuff. <laughs> but anyway, there was a journalist along with us um, who, um, as, as all good journalists do, befriended all of us, thought we were completely wonderful until he wrote a story in the, in the newspaper telling the world what a bunch of charlatans we were. It, it sounds like he wasn't wrong. Uh, I, the stuff they reported, I would say this, wouldn't I? I don't remember seeing, but there, but, but there were quite a few of us doing it, and I, and I certainly don't doubt that it, that, that it went on. We'll come back to that, actually, because I think this idea of the gumball-style driver collective rally is still going. It's been going a long time. It's just morphed into something that is difficult to understand at the moment. But let's come back to, to this working thing, because you and I did something fairly similar in that you, we realised that we weren't cut out for civilian life, and therefore we had to go and follow the thing that had until that point taking up a lot more of our time than we probably admitted, which was reading car magazines. So once you'd realised that you weren't going to set the world alight as a commodities broker and you didn't want to be called Andy, uh, what did you go and do? Uh, I then decided, I decided I was going to get serious and um, I was going to become a lawyer. Um, and uh, I got through the first year of the law degree okay, and then a thing called the Law of Property Act or Land Law or something, and it was this massive tone just landed on the desk in front of me. Um, and my tutor said, by the end of this year, you will have learned every word of this. And I just knew I, I wouldn't. I just knew I couldn't. It was, it was not something that I had the power to do. So that was the end of law. Um, so I sort of went, I went home and, um, and watched daytime telly. I became, you're probably too young to remember Crown Court. 
Yeah. Um, but Crown Court was a wonderful series where um, actors played out a scene uh, and then a real jury selected from stout and honest members of the public would decide whether the person in question was guilty or not. And this, this, was, this was fantastic, but probably not a great way of um, earning a living. Anyway, somebody, a friend of my brother's, spotted an advert in the Media Guardian for a envelope-licking job at Autocar. Um, and it, only because I saw it very late um, did I ring up just to see if the job was still available. And they told me that it was because they had 400 applications and uh, hadn't begun to get through them. Um, and I think probably the only smart thing I did was say, is there anything I can do to make my application stand out? And they said that rather foolishly, they just asked for CVs on the ad, so nobody had sent in an example of their writing. I had a Renault 5 at the time. And um, so I wrote, so I wrote up something about that. I couldn't type, so but my brother has, knew somebody who could. So it got typed up, sent in, I got an interview, and yeah, that was Autocar. So you've, you've been given this job at Autocar magazine, being paid three fifths of nothing, I would have thought, and your yeah. chief ashtray or whatever it is you start out as. Yeah. But like me, did you have a sense that you'd finally got to the place where you belonged? Except I did. Uh, it's where I wanted to be, but they didn't want me to be there. Um, I'd been, I'd sort of, I think the, first, the term is lied quite a lot to get myself there and perhaps somewhat over-egged um, my abilities as both a driver and a writer. Um, and, you know, quite a few people at the magazine, quite a few senior members of staff at the magazine uh, weren't shy about uh, making it clear that they regarded my time there as limited um, to the extent that when I asked the editor why he hadn't put my name on the flannel panel, his, re his entirely honest response was because I'd only have to take it off again. Um, so, um, and, and really what turned it around um, was Mel Nichols, who many will know, uh, editor of Car in the 70s, the man who, with others, turned Car into the most incisive, interesting... I, I still look back at those magazines in the 1970s and an awe of what they achieved. Absolutely, and I think for, for the benefit of the audience that don't know who Mel is, um, both of us, Andrew and I, see him as definitely a father figure in our careers. Um, he, was, he was at Haymarket when I was there as well. Um, he's, he was uh, the, the, the four... He was the, well, in the first two of the great Australians that came over to redefine motoring journalism in Europe, for whatever reason, it was Australians that did it. Um, yes. And uh, he had an ability to write uh, in a in a, almost a stream of consciousness style that rather than empirically road test a vehicle, he told a story and put you in the, in the seat of the vehicle and took you along for the ride. And for people like myself and Andrew, it was utterly captivating, certainly enough to fail public exams over. Yes, and, and the way that you emerged from those stories... Um, somehow in possession of all the facts about the car, having been entirely unaware of the fact that you've been that you've been reading the facts at all. It was you, know, you read you read them for the story. I mean, some of the amazing stories that they we came over the hill into the valley. Yeah, those sorts of stories. That his drive story of the Daytona, the convoy trip back in the Lamborghinis from Santa Agata, and all those sorts of stuff. And at the end of it, somehow you knew all about the car as well. It was astonishing journalist. So Mel, at this stage, Mel was editorial director of Haymarket? So Mel was editorial director at, at Haymarket. Um, so crucially, he wasn't um, daytime staff at Autocar. And all the people at Autocar uh, had time to do was to say that what I was doing was wrong. Um, 
and when I went to Mel, really pretty much um, as a sort of last resort because I, I, I thought I was headed out the door, um, he looked at what I was writing and he went, yeah, they're absolutely right, it is wrong. Um, but what he did was he said, here are perhaps one or two ways in which you might be able to think about putting it right. And he worked with me, not that much, but a little bit. He invested a little bit of time in me and um, I can remember, I went to do one story and it was because it was an old car, um, it was a bit more the sort of ground that I was more comfortable with. And yeah, I just kind of tried to apply what he suggested. And somebody came up to me afterwards and went, wow, that's actually not bad. And after that, I guess some kind of penny dropped somewhere and I've been away. And then absolutely, as you suggest, that is where um, I felt I belonged. And bizarrely, 30 something years later, I'm still, I'm still working for Six them. years after that, maybe less, five and a half years after that, you're out the door, or you think you're out of the door, another career that hasn't worked. I know exactly how you feel. That's how I was. I was just useless. You're actually on the Yorkshire Moors and you're road testing the McLaren F1. Yeah, it was good. So it's not not a bad um, career progression. I mean, you wrote that road test. I've still got it. I have it um, wherever I live. I have that road test by the by the throne. It's it's a magazine I have to have. It's just an amazing. It's an amazing piece of writing. Um, And I I think um, I still look at the numbers in a sense of utter fantasy about this vehicle that was from another planet. So what was that like? Well, it was it, it it was it was all sorts of things. I mean, just the specifics writing of the road test. I got a lot of stick for it at the time, because I was told the test itself lacked a sense of occasion because I wrote it very straight. If you look at the opening paragraph, it just says the McLaren F1 is a six point one litre V twelve six hundred twenty seven. It's just completely straight. Of course, history judges you of having made exactly the right the right decision because. It now sits as a document without hyperbole. It's just something you go back to that you absorb. And I think you made absolutely the right decision. Well, you're, you're very kind. I, I, the thought process at the time was simply that if ever a car didn't need to be bigged up, this was <laughs> if ever a car was capable of speaking for itself, this th- this was it. But the test itself, um, you know, I, I, I kind of tied up the loose ends at the end of the organisation, but it probably took two years to set up because McLaren had made clear from the start that they were only going to get let one magazine test the car. And whatever the numbers were, they were the numbers that McLaren would use and that everybody else would use, and those would be the numbers, the official numbers for the car. Um, and it was by no means clear at the start that Autocar would get that. Um, because Autocar, back in 92, was still sort of rebuilding from... It had not been in a very good state in the mid-1980s. Um, and it was very definitely on the mend and going in the right directions. But you can imagine, um, you know, there were lots of other publications who thought that that was their story. Um, and people on the magazine, more senior to me, made it happen. And then I just sort of organised the nuts and the bolts of it. And then it was all going to happen on May the 2nd, 1994, which it did. And on May the 1st, 1994, as many people um, listening to this will remember, Ayrton Senna got killed. Yeah. Um, which to us was a terrible, terrible thing, uh, as it was for millions of people around the globe. Um, I mean, at Autocar, we idolised um, the bloke. But for McLaren... It was, you know, for people like Gordon Murray, who'd led the teams, who designed the cars, in which he won all three of his world championships, for Jonathan Palmer, um, who was going to be with us all the time, who was McLaren's test driver and Ayrton Senna's teammate, therefore. I mean, we didn't even know if they were going to turn up the following day. Um, and that's, I kind of, I think that's when I knew what professionalism was about. Following day, they were all there and they were all fine. And we got on and we did the job. So it'll always have bittersweet memories for me um there's no there's no denying that um but at the same time you know i got in this car and 
yeah, it, it just completely changed the way I thought a, a, a road car could behave. It expanded the envelope. It, it wasn't just, you know, a bit more in every direction. It was a completely new level. And don't forget by then we'd had the EB110 and we'd had the XJ220 and we'd had the F40. I mean, we knew what quick cars were like. And then suddenly this thing comes out of nowhere. And it's, it's once in a generation car. And I think funnily enough, um, we're probably going to have another fairly shortly with a Valkyrie. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was that kind of car. Um, there's not been a car, you know, I've been very lucky to drive, you know, all the mainstream hypercars that have come since and that sort of thing. And, and there is nothing that has come close to moving the goalpost the way that car did. I think um, it's an amazing document, that, that particular magazine, because you, you see the date and you do think, Crikey, that's when it happened. Because you published it very quickly afterwards as well, wasn't it? You didn't hang around. You didn't hold on to it for, for a couple of weeks like you would three weeks, four weeks like we used to in the past. I think three weeks, two weeks later, that was published, that story, wasn't it? From memory, it might have been the May the 11th issue. I can't remember. But yes. Yeah. We, yeah, yeah. And I don't know why, because normally with something like that, if we knew that nobody else had got it or anything like it, we'd sit in it and we'd refine it because there'd be nothing to lose. I suspect we knew that although we'd be doing the numbers... Car Magazine had a story that yeah. was going to come out. Um, and, you know, and we, we didn't just want to be first. We wanted to be first and best. So controversially, I've, I've only driven one F1, um, a standard road car. I, I preferred the F50 on the road. I thought the F50 was a nicer car to drive. Nothing like as fast. But I th certainly the, the McLaren was just a just this out-of-control powertrain that was so violently fast with this chassis and braking system that was spent the whole time trying to keep up with what was going on. That's what it felt like to me. Um, whereas the F50, I, I'd always read as being the poor relative. But I just thought it was a sensational road car. Yeah, and, I never... and, and the whole package just felt like it worked together. It was, you know, homogenous hull. Everything worked seamlessly. It had great brakes. It had the right amount of braking for the performance. The chassis worked. Whereas the McLaren, I just just felt too angry to me. Yeah, I've never said the F1 was the best road car that I ever drove. Um, you know, I always said it was the F40, funny enough. I, 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 too, was a huge fan of the F50. I thought it was a thing to get in and drive. Um, it was... It was it was such a nice car to drive um, in terms, particularly the terms of the way that it behaved on the limit. Uh, it was a car that you you, know, you you didn't mess about with an F1 on the limit at all, and people who tried often got quite badly burnt. Um, I don't mean that literally, um, but with an F50, you could hoof it about, and it had that extraordinary powertrain. I also don't know why no one has since tried using an engine as a fully stressed member in a road car maybe it's just too difficult because i don't remember undue levels of mvh and f50 i remember the sweetest nicest powertrain yeah it's gorgeous and it was all just hung off the back of the car by four bolts gear shift from third to fourth in an f50 for some reason just feels about three mils shorter than the other ones and you go oh it's in and oh, what a machine okay um so it's interesting and i you know, we've discussed this before but we'll, we'll, we'll record it here now so you benefited from someone having a look at your writing and and ultimately just nudging you in the right direction. And you, you haven't really looked back since. Now, what you'll love, um, people listen to this, is that Andrew did the same to me. So he he, um, he went on to Motorsport Magazine um, and successfully edited that for many years and created some fantastic stories and covers. And then, I think, decided to leave and go freelance. But he still had a contract with Haymarket and they needed him to do something. Why would they have this very useful guy still being paid for three months and not use him? So he was seconded back to Autocar Magazine for a few months where he had to look after 
some idiots, junior idiots on the road test desk, and I was one of them. And one thing we've always discussed in the pub was, if you can find it, a copy of the BMW Z8 road test. Um, that was that weird James Bond car that BMW made. It was it was actually produced and developed by uh, Bovins even, wasn't it, from Alpina? And uh, I wrote the road test on it. And the way you, in those days, the way the road test worked was that you'd write them, you'd tighten them up, and they would fit them, the, the design department would fit them into a Quark Express document, which is pictures and Quark word blocks. Quark Express, that? that's a term I haven't heard in a while. And then, and then you'd be given a printout of it, and it loosely fitted the page, and it would be, a, it would be an A4 printout, black and white. And then your, you know, your line manager, such as there was one in the old car road test desk, would go through it, hand it back to you with comments, both, you know, style, writing style, but also the accuracy of your of your feedback and making sure that you were getting everything right. And Andrew was was doing that for me for three months. It was a busy time for me because he he knows how much I admired his writing. You know, he basically was the god of the road test desk. And he gave me back the Z8 road test. And, and there was so much red pen on it, you couldn't actually see any of the words that I'd written. And um, it, it was just a, a brutal awakening for me that I, was, I wasn't getting it quite right and that might have, I might have got a bit sloppy and I remember sitting down with him and said I don't quite know where to start with this and you politely told me it might be better to start again and this time not take so many liberties so yeah in your own way you did the same to me as, as Mel did to you and it, I think when I, I, I read some modern some of the young generation coming through I mean motoring writing is you could say not what it was because it's not as popular there aren't the opportunities therefore it's not ensnaring perhaps as, you know, a silent a group of people. But but I, I wonder whether there are people around now for, for youngsters to push them in the right direction with their writing. Well, I hope there are, um, and I'm available. Um, and, you know, for the for the right person, if they were good, um, you know, there's not, I'm not trying to sort of start up a sideline here. I would just do it because um, it's a slightly weird thing to say because I'm talking about, you know, trying to, you know, train people who will eventually... You know, lose me my living but it really worries me you know there are some really good young people out there but you know I to be honest with you I genuinely thought that by now um, I'd already been out the door because another generation would have come across and um, and, and made me um, irrelevant or old and off the pace um, and and it hasn't happened and I think that probably says I'd love to say that's because I'm such a brilliant writer but in fact I think the truth is, is, that, is that that next generation just hasn't turned up. Um, and I would love to do what I can, really, to help um, youngsters along if they're in it for the right reasons. I mean, so many people um, historically have done it because they just love driving fast cars. And it's, it's, you know, it's a strange skill set, what you and I do. You've got to love cars. You properly love cars. You can't manufacture that. Um, you've also got to be able to write. You don't have to be Hemingway, but you have to be able to write. And then there's the link between the two. You have to be able to understand the car and then communicate it. Um, and, you know, there were a few of us um, who have, for whatever reason, to whatever standard, been able to do that. And I just don't think there are that many um, coming through anymore, and it concerns me. Um, sadly, uh, heard news of Norman Jewis um, passing away at the weekend. Um he was Jaguar's test driver for Lord knows how many years. You know, he, he became a figure of folklore because he was so associated with their glory years. Um, D-type, E-type, Lord knows what. I, I was thinking over the weekend, actually, we were involved in a shambolic recreation of a part of that history, weren't we? Do you remember that? When we went to Millbrook 
and they'd re they'd rebuilt. Someone had rebuilt the E-Type that had been driven to the Geneva Motor Show. Oh God! And yes, Andrew Fra- wait for this. Blew and, it up. And Andrew Frankel <laughs> was charged with going to drive this at Millbrook to shake it down to to then to produce a story about this vehicle. And I had to sit shotgun and report on my on my hero Andrew Frankel as he drove this vehicle. So. And I also had to operate the timing gear as we went. To, we went to try and recreate the 150 miles an hour, didn't Absolutely. we, or something at Millbrook? Yeah. I'll, Andrew will take over the story now. Okay. So, <laughs> so this was this was the first Jaguar prototype, uh, 9600 HP, a car that's now owned by Philip Porter. Um, and back in its original road test in Autocar 1961, it did 150.01 miles per hour. And it became fairly clue, fairly clear, sorry, at some unspecified later on that the only reason it did that was because it had some fairly dodgy bits in it. Um, <laughs> you know, a D-type engine, effectively. Um, but anyway, uh, Philip got this car, bought the car, got it completely restored and got it restored to the original specification. And he came to us and said, shall we go and do 150 miles an hour in it? And, you know, and the thing is, obviously, you know, you're not going to go and um, do that on the public road. I suppose we could have taken it to Germany. Um, and there isn't any track long enough to what's get a car. What's wrong with Jebeki? What was wrong with Jebeki? Well, it's a rather busy public road in Belgium now, <laughs> and I don't think the Belgian authorities would have had too much to say about it. Um, but, uh, yeah, so um, to do 150 miles an hour in a car with a top speed of 150.1, you need an awful lot of space, um, and you're just not going to do it um, on a test track um, just going down a straight. So we thought we'd take it to the Millbrook Bowl. Um and so that's what we did. Um, I, the, there was not enough headroom for me to wear a helmet. I think I put 20 kilos of tiny time equipment on your lap. Um, and off we trotted around the Millbrook Bowl, going faster and faster and faster, um, neatly forgetting the fact, that, well, two facts, really. One is that um, if you're going around a bowl, you are effectively cornering, and that's going to knack your top speed anyway. So I don't think we ever got near it. I think we got to 140-something. Um, the second thing I didn't appreciate at the time was that E-types, even travelling in a straight line at that sort of speed, aren't necessarily noted for their stability. Um, and I think I actually bottled out just as, as we started to oversteer gently at 140-something miles an hour. And I think I was just wondering about whether this was probably time to call it quits when I noticed we were to- towing a rather large ball of smoke behind us. Um, and that was the end of Philip Porter's brand new D-type engine. <laughs> We were going back and it was general silence. Were either of you looking at the oil pressure gauge? Yes, by the time we came in, it was low. <laughs> he was actually, to be fair to Philip, he was really good about it. I mean, I think he knew. Because, because you're putting, it's a wet sump and they're just not designed to be subject to those sorts of forces. And I think all the oil had gone up one end of the engine. And um, yeah, I don't think it was cheap. Collecting cars. The safe, smart and simple way to buy and sell collectible cars. An online auction platform for the UK and Europe. Follow us on Instagram at Collecting Cars and also CollectingCars.com. The CollectingCars.com podcast with Chris Harris and Edward Lovett. What's your best Millbrook Bowl story? I mean, you've got one obvious one that you'll have to tell us because you always remind me of it, but there must be another one as well. What's your most obvious Millbrook Bowl story? Let me, let me tell you what the Millbrook Bowl is. Millbrook's a test facility in the UK, for those of you listening outside the UK. Um, and like everything in England, it's a bit smaller than it is in America. So we do have a, the bowl, which is three miles? Two miles round. Two miles round. Um, and it's hands off at 100 miles an hour on the outside lane. So it'll track straight at 100 miles an hour. 
But if you go above 100 miles an hour, you, it's positive scrub on the on the outside front tyre. So you're effectively cornering. And so it's not a great place to test top speeds. If you can go really fast there, you're doing it because you're hanging on for dear life, really. Over to you, Andrew. Yeah, okay. So um, so I think I think I figured out the one that you um, that you want to talk about. Um, other than that, it was trying to do a max speed test on a 3.6964911 turbo. Um, we always had a rule that you had to do these things two up um, because you can't use timing equipment because the timing equipment was mounted on the side of the car and it produced too much drag. So the only way you could do it was with somebody else with a stopwatch in the car. Um, I didn't have somebody else. Um, I can't remember what happened to somebody else. He either decided, elected not to get in the car or, or didn't turn up on the day. Um, but the car was going back and I needed this number. So I thought, I thought to myself, I know what I'll do, is I'll drive around at 100 miles an hour um, in the top lane, which was the speed. You couldn't be get into the top lane unless you were doing 100 miles an hour. And I'll work out where my hands are on the steering wheel and I'll lash the stopwatch to the dashboard and I'll just extend a little finger. Um, and a pinky. A little pinky. And I'll just, every half a mile, tap the button and do it, and, and, and do it that way, which all starts, sounded remarkably fine to me. Until I did it, and at which stage the car is doing 171 miles an hour, and understeering so much, I had an entire another half turn of lock <laughs> turn, and my pinky little pinky was nowhere near the stopwatch, and I was really worried about the tires because yeah, up there, you know, I've had cars doing all sorts of strange things with their tires, and I think called, do you remember the Minka? Oh, the Minka! The Minka. I had a tire disintegrate. Oh, on Turbo the, Technics, wasn't it? Yeah, on a 400 horsepower Minka. So I'm really worried about the tires. <laughs> And I haven't got time to stop and let the tyres cool down and work out where to put the bloody stopwatch all over again. So I just thought, I know, I'll just hold the stopwatch in my hand. So I did it. I maxed a 964, which wasn't the nicest of the car, the 3.6 turbo 964, one-handed at 174 miles an hour with as much understeer as you could ever want to have in a car. Um, and yeah. That's one for the health and safety people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I but, you, but you got a record, didn't you? Come on, let's get the record out. You were in the Guinness Book of Records. World, World Book of Guinness, what's it called? Well, it's Guinness Book of Records. Now, I think it's now called Guinness World Records. It's not a book anymore. No. I think a book is one of its products. I think Look, it's a come on, mate. I think Stop it's a being modest. Now. There's a picture of it in your bloody bog. How yeah. fast were you Well, be, well uh, yeah, 170. I think the average is 175 or something. In what? Yeah, but it was also, it wasn't a, quite a complete fraud. But it was close. So I always wanted to be in the Guinness Book of Records. But for some reason, I had this fixation about breaking a record. It's not good enough to set a record because you could be, you could set a record for being the bloke who jumped up and down on one leg, you know, wearing a silly hat on a Tuesday. And that, that to me wasn't really worth doing. You had to break a record, which Guinness had already accepted as being a worthwhile record to break. Uh, and I looked through the book, through all the carpets, and there simply wasn't one. Um, and so I kind of put that on the back burner um, until one day I was in the autocar office and the telephone rang and I happened to pick it up and it was a bloke um, from Guinness saying, we need someone to edit the motoring pages of the Guinness Book of Records. My first ever freelance gig, I got paid 50 quid a year. Um, and a kind of light went on in my head. And I thought, well, if I do this, I'll get the 50 quid, but maybe I could suggest a record. And then I thought to myself, well, what sort of record could I have set and then break? Which sounds plausible, but is in fact really easy. And I thought, how about fastest lap of a UK circuit by a production car? Well, that sounds good. How did you get Millbrook defined as a circuit? It goes round, doesn't it? It's a circuit. Oh, it's got to start and finish. It's a circuit. It's, okay, is India a circuit? It's bloody frank or semantics if ever I heard it in my it's life. It's a bowl in the US. Is Talladega a circuit? It's a circuit. Uh, yeah, anyway, so... Um, and then, so I had a boss. You're, um, not, you're still not that sure about that. 
I mean, you've blustered through it. It's a circuit. Um, I had this boss, Howard Lees, very sadly he died uh, in an aircraft crash a few years later. Um, and so many people won't remember him. Mad bike racer. Um, amazing um, driver. Um, and I suggested to him for a story that it might be quite good to go and um, set the uh, the record for being the fastest car around a circuit in a production car around a UK circuit. And I think the Testarossa was out at the time. And so off he toddled. TR. In a Testarossa, not a TR, getting to that. Um, and went round the circuit and did 171 miles an hour. Um, came back and said it had all been terribly easy. Guinness Book, Guinness Book of Records, thank you very much. And that was it. I had my I had my record to break. And the next year, the TR came out, which, as you know, was more powerful, <laughs> more aerodynamically stable, had better tyres on it. So you actually strategised this Completely. with your knowledge Absolutely. of Ferrari's totally Ferrari's product. product. Absolutely. <laughs> um, so I created a record which I got somebody else to set just so I could break it. How much faster did the TR go? Not much quicker, was it? Didn't matter. Four miles an hour. I think I did. Well, four. Yeah, I think I did 175. Didn't matter. It was also the other thing was is that you know, unlike the bloody 964, which had been a nightmare, the, the TR was just it was just easy. I could have been driving. To what the did shop. Tiff end up doing? 190 or something? Yeah, that's crazy. I think yeah. Tiff still says that's the maddest thing he's ever done in the car. I mean, just it done must some have been crazy a roller coaster ride. Have you seen? Have you seen the? I mean, blimey, that's. I mean, Tiff did. I mean, his average was over 190. And I think significantly over 190. There's no way in the world. If anyone back ever then, tried when to I was that, really yeah. stupid, I'd have tried to do something like that. Yeah, I think if anyone tried to beat that, it resulted in a crash. Well, it's interesting. I mean, you know, I think he did that 20 something years ago, and no one's gone near it. I think there's my two favourite Milbrook Bowl stories. One was this one that went into slight folklore. I won't mention who they were, but there were two people that worked on the Autocar Road Test desk with me who were famous for being complete jokers. And during their greatest joker period, they went. They met. They wanted to sail past one of the Milbrook workers because there was a guy. There were lots of drivers that worked at Milbrook. They just did lots of menial work. So on the bowl, you'd start lane one with fifty, I think, seventy, eighty on the way up. So they were lane two, lane three guys, and they, they were bless them. They had to um, sit in an Astra, you know, next year's Astra, going round and round with some water containers that were fake passenger ballast, just conducting tests. You know, they were. They were. They were metered up whatever they had on them Corovit Datron gear and they just go around and around and around and the idea was that these two would be hilarious if they sailed past this, this one of these blokes doing 80 miles an hour with no one driving the car and they just set cruise control because you could on the bowl you, you could. could genuinely leave it at 80 miles an hour yes. in the right lane because it was so it was so accurately built yeah. and they did and there was all, I mean, all hell kicked off I think it and was they like got in the back Bentley Continental T two of them got in the back and just went past this bloke, and it took two laps of them going past him. I think for them to real, for him to realise and radio in and go. There's no, there's a Bentley with no one driving it in lane three, and I, and I think all hell kicked off. Now, but the, the weirdest one I had was a guy. A guy wrote into Autocar. It must have been I'd only been there a year or two, saying that his son had been banned for, from driving for being caught speeding doing. 107 miles an hour in a ro- in a Rover 45 I think it was Hey I'm Ryan Reynolds at Mint Mobile we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does they charge you a lot we charge you a little so naturally when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you That's right we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month 
Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. And he was convinced the vehicle wouldn't attain that speed. And so he was willing to pay us or, you know, support us to prove that the vehicle wouldn't do it. And I wasn't sure. And I, they came to me because I was the numbers geek that knew all about numbers. You know what it's like when you're when you're road testing cars regularly. You're there. You're there two, three days a week. Yeah. You you could, you almost don't need to performance test them because your bottom is so finely calibrated that you know what something's going to do, don't you? you do. it, pretty it, much. It was yeah. Crazy. It was really weird. Yeah, to within a tenth or two. Yeah. Yeah. And um, and they said to me, you know, he doesn't think it'll do it. And I thought it's marginal. I think it might. So we we. He, this guy was so insistent that he bought the car along to Millbrook. And I think it was 104, 105 miles an hour. He was absolutely adamant. He bought his son along as well. He was facing a ban for this driving. This, and they were all set up. And I, they really felt this was their way to prove how innocent he was. And I went, okay, it's fine. I got in the car. And within th- within three quarters of a lap, she was singing along at 111 up on the top of the bus. <laughs> 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 I just basically had to just pat them on the way and say, sorry, bang to rights. But that's the thing. I mean, people never appreciate, and I never appreciate it until I started maxing cars at Millbrook, just how long it takes a car to reach its maximum speed. You know, it, it'll get up to a level, and you'll think, well, that's it. Just sit there for another couple of laps. And oh. you'll be surprised, really surprised by how much it'll also, still just take And also, as you're, even in something that's moderately quick, I mean, if you're doing one te- the 110 to 125 window is never a problem. The vehicle's always fine. But once you've got beyond about 125... The way the, the the loaded front tire would begin to just gnaw away at the tread box on the outside always shocked me. Yeah, because you could get into a bit of a chasing it situation, couldn't you? It'd be Friday afternoon, want to get back, want to finish the week, but I really think I can get another two miles now out of this bad boy. So you'd stay up and you get up the top over the white line, so the wing mirror is right by the barrier, and um, and you'd keep chasing it. And I can remember being in things like E thirty E thirty nine five twenty eight I, I think, or five thirty I trying to get it to do an honest 150 on the bowl. And I, and I came back in, and the front tyre, there was, there was, you know, you could see fabric. Yeah. Because it just kept going far too long. Yeah. You could, yeah. Have, you could have a huge one, couldn't you? Oh, in the, in the Minka, um, <laughs> I, was stopped, I was only stopped because some, it, it sounded like somebody was, had just let off a machine gun. And this was cherry-sized chunks of rubber being fired out of the outer block of the tyre into the, into the wheel arch. And, you know, if I... I mean, if I'd stay, who God knows what would happen if I stayed up there any longer. Um, okay, well, I really think that's that's the, that's the point at which we're going to end part one of this um, Collecting Cars podcast. And I never, ever thought that someone would volunteer information about the Turbo Technics Minka on one of my podcasts, but I'm very glad that uh, Andrew did. Go and have a cup of tea, and we'll see you back in a minute. Welcome back to the Collecting Cars podcast with myself, Chris Harris, at Harris Monkey, and Andrew Frankel, who's confusing array of um, social media tags I can't really be asked to read out again so let's and I'll do it okay so we're at Frankel Andrew on Instagram at Andrew underscore Frankel, underscore Frankel on, on Twitter and also his um, and I will reiterate this his frankly brilliant venture with Dan Prosser 
which is called Drive Nation, Drive Nation underscore on Instagram as well. So follow that for um, opinion news, basically just good, wholesome motoring journalism on a platform that's full of narcissism and bollocks. Um, right, so we're going to come back now to some more car year stuff because I love reminiscing about this stuff. There yeah, was. what's going to happen now is you're just, we're going to spend the next half an hour with, with me just painting myself to be as the least professional person who's ever worked in this industry, aren't no, we? No, well, partly that. And I'll, I'll chime in as well because obviously I've did my fair share of bad things. Um, there, there was, in autocar folklore, a day called Black Monday. And it, it meant something rather different to what it meant to those in the financial markets. What was Black Monday? <laughs> uh, the black refers to the ice that was on the road on, on the day in question. <laughs> Where were you going, all of you? Um, we were we were toddling off to the um, to the Millbrook test track of a of a apparently really rather cold Monday morning. Um, thing is, honest, I was living in London at the time, and it wasn't that cold when I got in the car. And the car being a one point one S Metro, um, it didn't have an outside temperature to gauge. So when I hit said black ice, um, there's a if you drive the normal way, uh, the way that any nav would take you from uh, Junction 12 of the M4 to the North Proving Ground, it's a perfectly conventional bit of country road. There is, however, a another route, um, which is an amazing bit of road. And the amazing thing is, I did it quite recently, and it's still a fantastic bit of road. Uh, so that's the way we all went. Um, and at the very first corner on that road, um, I, I turned in and the, and, and the car didn't. So Where did the car end up? Uh, the, the car ended up in a field. Yep. Uh, having gone through a hedge, leaving a hole which was there for years. Um, and there was quite a lot of damage to it. I can remember, because it was dark at the time, because it was January and it was early in the morning, I can remember roaming around the field and what was left of this metro with the lights on, trying to find the hole that I'd made so I can get out of the field again. Eventually did that. Um, and I was surprised to see this, this sort of strange intermittent light coming from apparently below the road. And I didn't know what it was. And so I sort of went off to investigate and discovered a bit further up the road, a Renault 1916 valve on its side in a ditch below the surface of the road. It had fallen off the road down a ditch. Um, but whoever was in it or had been in it had had the presence of mind to put the hazard lights on. Um, hence the flashing lights. And I can remember clambering down to this thing, um, rather concerned for the, uh, for the occupants and finding that the car had been locked and there was nobody in it. Uh, and this was a rather familiar Renault 1916 valve that it had been in the office car park the Friday before. And this was uh, one of my esteemed road test colleagues um, who'd, um, well, fair play, he'd got further around the corner than I did. <laughs> And, um, and, and he was, but there was no sign of him. So I started flagging down traffic to warn them of the back ice. Um, and eventually he returned on a tractor, of all things. Um, and the first thing he said to me when he saw the remains of the metro at the side of the road was, I'm so glad you crashed. Um, and I could have taken offence at that. But his point was that, you know, he was, he was a young lad. He was new to the department. And he thought his... You know, he thought his career was over before it had started. But the the road test editor goes off. I'm not going to start So I basically, I saved his job by binning it. Um, and, then, and then later, now here's a great car. See if you remember this. Um, a third member. So, so, what's, so what's happened with the tractor? Have you tried to extract the 19 from the ditch? Or? No, 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 no. The, tra- no. the tractor was just, he was just thumbing a lift at the side of the road. The first thing that came back was the pass with the tractor. And so he just got on that and came back. Um, but there was a third car involved, although it escaped because it was a Golf Limited. Okay. Do you remember the Golf Limited? Yeah, yeah. Golf Limited was one of the coolest cars ever built. 
um, and another of our number got round the corner. He went all the way up a bank and down again, but he did get round the corner uh, and made it to the track because the Golf Limited, it was, it was a Mark II Golf. It was a five-door, single-headlight Mark II Golf. Um, the most innocent-looking thing there was. But you remember at the time, back then, you could get a supercharged 8-valve engine in a something like a Corrado, or you could get the 16-valve engine. What they never did was supercharge the 16-valve engine. Yeah. But they did for the Limited. Yeah. And so this had, it doesn't sound like much now, but back then, this had a 215 horsepower uh, supercharged 16-valve engine in a Golf with four-wheel drive, and it looked like something your auntie would take shopping. I mean, what a device. Yeah. Um, I still look for them to this day and you, you never find them and when you do they are ridiculous money but um, yeah so that was Black Monday and we all um, the Metro got repaired I don't think the 19 did and the Golf was fine the, go- the Golf did have it did go up a bank did it oh it went right up a bank yeah yes I mean he he, he, he basically I mean he was off um, and you know he, but he went up a bank came back down and again landed on the ground and, and managed not to hit anything but yes I mean, he was Black Monday Black Monday yes I don't think um I think the world's changed a bit now, hasn't it? Really, you, you can't really. We can laugh and joke about stuff that happened in the past, but I think if if people in our positions were found to think that stuff was funny now, we'd get told off, wouldn't we? But ultimately, you do fall off now and again, don't you? You know, everyone has. A I look think if to. you do this job, I mean, you know, the, the the metro there wasn't a huge amount, and I always used to think that you were entitled entitled. That's not true. Uh, that one big one was forgivable, um, and that wasn't even my big one. Um, so uh, and and I did, I did have a big one in 1992, which was a properly big one. Um, funnily enough, on the same bit of road. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and funnily enough, the, the the weather did play its part in this one too. So um, briefly, it was January 1992. Um, the Lancia Delta Evo had just come out, and the first one in the country, as often was the case back then, came to Autocar for road testing. Um, and because I was the road test editor at the time and I thought I was Yuha Kankanen and there was lots of snow around at the time, I thought I'll take it to the test track. It didn't even occur to me back then um, that if there's snow all over the place, the test track's unlikely to be open. It didn't even ring them up. I thought, I'm off to Millbrook. <laughs> and so I get on this thing. Um, and I was driving along far too fast and there's a bridge, which you will know well, uh, which is not a straight line over at all. You've got to take a line through the bridge, which I duly did at quite some speed in this delta and um the third literally the first my first thing of which i was aware was looking at my own tire tracks through the snow um crisscrossing <laughs> as this car rotated um i was i, I was already quite clearly traveling backwards <laughs> and uh, that obviously wasn't great um <laughs> And the car left the road. Um, somebody had told somebody told me later, and I don't even know to this day whether it's true. But if there is water flowing underneath something where there is very cold liquid on top of it, that liquid is likely to freeze. Um, so there was ice on top of the bridge. Um, anyway, the car flew off the road and down a ditch. And uh, because by the stage it was going backwards, because the ditch was on the right, and because it was a left-hand drive car, that mean when the car hit the far side of the bank. Um, the car also hit me and um so that did a little bit of damage of which at the time i i, I was i was unaware i was much more concerned about this this thing was just going around and around knocking corners of itself um and it eventually got spat back out onto um the road and i sort of staggered out um and wandered off to a house that was nearby knocked on the door 
because there were no mobile telephones then. Um, and I rang the police who said, was anybody else involved? No. Um, were any other, have you damaged anybody's property? No. So they said, here's the number of a recovery truck. Good luck. No interest at all. Uh, and I then rang uh, my editor, or Autocar, um, and told him what had happened. Um, and instead of roasting me alive, which is what I, he should have done, he said, Andrew, are you sure you're okay? And I went, no, I'm absolutely fine. He said, no, I don't think you are. And I said, well, how, how, how do you know? You weren't there, you didn't see it. He said, no, you just sound different. You need to go to a hospital. Um, anyway, uh, long and short of it was they recovered the car. Uh, I went to a hospital and uh, mild concussion, a few broken ribs, that sort of thing, of which I was completely unaware at the time. Um, and um, the only slightly funny thing is, is that when that story, as these things always do, it gets out and the story comes back to you. Um, and every time that story comes back to me, to this day it comes back to me, the car's parked upside down on its roof in the field. Yeah. Whereas the only panel of the car I didn't damage was its roof. <laughs> I always found, I mean, I've not had many offs, but I've ended up in a few fields, as we all have. That I, was my last off. The, I haven't, stupid, this is a really stupid thing to say, I haven't on a road. That, that don't go there. No, okay. No, I was just, you're, you're not stupid, Andrew, so don't, don't go there. Um, for me, it was always the, 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 I suppose the anatomy of the of the incident from start to finish. There's the the realization that it's gone wrong, and that you've got to deploy all of your skill very quickly to try and stop it going wrong. Then there's the quite often realization that you've deployed your skill, you've been found wanting, and this is going to happen regardless of what you can do. Then it happens, and then it stops, and then more often than not, because modern cars are quite safe and have been for a long time, you get out of it and you dust yourself down and you say, blimey, got away with that, or, you know, it's not been great, but I'm okay. All that stuff you could deal with. For me, it was the gap between that point and getting the thing recovered and sorted out. I hated that bit. It was the sort of standing around, begging for help, looking like a total ass in front of, I just, that's the bit, I'm not proud. I just hated it because you can't put it in the past until that's happened. And, and you spent. Then, and it's still too, an ongoing situation. And you've got too much time to go back and and try and think what could have been done to not be there. And of course, there's always some very obvious things that you could have been doing not to be there. Chief among them, normally to go fifty miles an hour slower. Yes. But but uh, I hated that bit. And I remember the first first time it happened to me was um, Peugeot two hundred six GTI launch, and I'm it's my first hot hatch that I'm doing probably standalone for, for Autocar magazine. I've gone on the launch. Mr. Richard Meaden, who'll be appearing in this uh, on this podcast at some point, was there as well. But he was he was writing for Eve, I was writing for Autocar. So I'm there. I'm there with the big guns, you know, the fast guys. And I'm I go out to drive this thing and the Autocar photographer, Daniel Papio, is um Stanley Papio, Steve Papios, whatever you call him. Satan Papadopoulos, I seem to believe. Stan. I mean Stan's been there for yeah. He's been there for a long time. He's seen it all. And I come around this corner and I think what I'll do is I'll just back off on the way in just to get that lovely, you know, that that characteristic Peugeot hot hatch thing where you've got a bit of oversteer, maybe a bit of three wheels. And I couldn't have got it more wrong. I was too late in the corner, which was always the worst thing you could do in a Peugeot. So I've come out of the corner, full gas, lifted off, and it's just got a massive swapper on. And we're somewhere near Divon, like just over the Swiss border into France. Can you and say that again, please? Divon. And, um, and you... And there's a nice, there's a tidy, what I thought was three, four foot down into the fields. So the road is raised up. It's, so it looks like Fenland, really. And as I left the road, it dawned on me that it wasn't three foot. It was 
probably more like six, seven foot. And I just went straight off. And, and the first thing that hit the ground was the bumper. It was so vertical when it went in, the bumper hit the ground, not the wheels. So I then head-butted the steering wheel, did the whole lot. Bags didn't go, <coughs> bags didn't go off, which was weird, because it had an air, I think it had an airbag. And then you're in this really weird position, because I'd only been driving the car for 20 minutes, and I already knew it was a catastrophic disappointment, because what we were looking for was the new 205 GTI. And that, the most, the most awkward position someone can be in, be put in as a motoring journalist for me is, that one where you you know the car's shit, you're, you're just getting ready to tell the world how bad it is, and then you go and damage it. So you think, I, I'm not sure I can go through with my plan because I, cause I've damaged this thing, and they've got recourse to say, well, you're, you're an idiot, you couldn't drive it properly. And this had just happened. And I fired it into the field, and I remember, I just thought, well, this is a disaster. I'm, first of all, I'm out of a job, because like you, they were looking for ways to get rid of me because I was largely out of control. And even the small bits they thought were positive, they couldn't deal with. And I can remember my editor saying, we simply can't send you out in public representing this brand because you don't know how to behave. I mean, the same could be said today, probably, but I really didn't know what to do. And um, But I, I was keen, and I, I think the enthusiasm got me through a bit. I remember standing in this field thinking, I, need, I want, what I want to happen now is for this car to be out of this field. And it didn't, it just stayed there for ages. And I couldn't get rid of it and stand, bless him, wasn't much help because he couldn't be asked. He'd seen it so many times and he thought I was a bit of a dick anyway. So we stood there. But I remember thinking, it should be more damaged than this. Because the front PU was fine. The bumper was moved a bit, but I managed to get underneath it and play with some of the, the mountings and bend the mounting back. And I thought, this thing looks fine, actually. It just doesn't look too bad at all. And we took it to a jet wash. We, did get, we got a tractor to drag it out, but that took an hour and a half or something. So by that stage, I just felt awful. Um, and I thought, I want to get it back to the to the launch venue and never see it again and I'm going to fly out tomorrow morning so it was all looking good I got to a jet wash cleaned it all off I thought I got away with this I fired this thing into a field head first and I got away with it and I drove it back to the launch venue I'm probably going to get a letter from Peugeot now 20 years later and as I handed it over I just I got that awful tingling fear you get when you you almost pass out because you think, oh my God, and you're in public and you can't acknowledge it. As I handed the car over and they were looking at it, I thought, they can't, there's nothing wrong with this. And I looked up and there was a massive crease on the sunroof. There was a metal crease. Ooh. So I hadn't done any, I'd done no damage to the engine or powertrain or body or actual cosmetic bodywork, but I had written the shell off. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought, I can't face this. And I said, bye. And I just walked off. And they hadn't seen it? No, there was, a, there was a conversation afterwards, I think. Maybe a few weeks later when they worked out that the one I'd been driving was, was no longer symmetrical. <laughs> but yeah, I just... It didn't happen to me too many times, but I have to say that was the one. That was the first one. And it was, it was the wait between shunt and getting the... Just, once, just get it out of the way. Please, just yeah. remove, re- remove the crime you, from the scene. You just want the event to be in the past. Yeah. And while it's still there in front of you, it's very much an ongoing situation. Um, yeah, I remember. I remember Meaden on that trip. I think he had a whoopsie as well. They got, didn't they? He, when he comes on, he'll confirm they borrowed some bloke's two hundred five GTI. I think the handbrake failed up on the hill, and that got that sort of rolled into a wall. And I remember Peugeot. I wasn't the disaster wasn't complete um, because Peugeot, in a, a sort of visionary move, had decided that rather than give people a gift on on um, on a launch event, we can come back to those in a minute. We, this awful policy that car makers had years ago that to try and 
create impartiality through journalists. When you got to your room, there'd be a very expensive gift that would in no way render you impartial. Um, all of which I'm sure you always left in the room. Oh, I did, yeah. I gave them all away. Um, <clears throat> I can see you've got a room full of them here, Andrew. Um, and uh, how is your B&O Zeppelin? And the... <laughs> Sorry, B&W, isn't it? Um, the, we've all done it. But um, what Persia did was they said, we rather than give you an iPod, that's pre-iPod, isn't it? Rather than give you a, whatever, tape recorder, we're going to give you a DIY tree planting kit. <laughs> Which was quite out there, actually. And I remember thinking, well, in for a penny, in for a pound. So they gave us a bulb or whatever, something from a tree to, to grow. It's all in a box. And they gave us a vacuum-packed, um, vacuum-packed thing of mulch. So mulched um, uh, bark and wood chippings yeah. and soil. In a bag. Now, a vacuum-packed lump of mulch looks, and both smells, not unlike marijuana. Ah. Oh. So I take a flight on my own and I walk through Heathrow Airport and I'm a small, swarthy man with a beard. And I've just been on holiday, I think, as well. So I'm, 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 I don't look good. I don't look like the kind of bloke that should be walking through Heathrow carrying a bag of what could be marijuana. I think I landed at 1pm. I think at 6 they let me out of the building and told me that in future I shouldn't carry mulch through an airport and that I probably shouldn't do it. And I, and I said, would you mind contacting Persia and asking them not to give it to me? And they said, OK. I've, I've always noted when you and I travel abroad in cars together, um, I always sort of factor in a little bit of time for the fact that you're in the car. So we are going to get pulled apart at the border. Do you remember that? The first time that happened was when my Lotus Exige broke when we were at the Nürburgring on a track day 20 years ago and you had a gorgeous 993 RS and you gave me a lift back kindly and we were driving back through the French side of the Channel Tunnel and you went oh, I'll be on the train in five minutes so I went ah, something you need to know about travelling with me Andrew is I just look like a wrong one. <laughs> wherever I go I could be anything I've been accused of being Mexican Chechenian Albanian Turkish and I'm always the one that you don't want in your country basically yes and we, and we, drove, car. we drove through and I said this might take some time went, no nonsense we'll be fine and 10 minutes later when they were asking you to un uh, open the front of your car and you said this is ridiculous <laughs> um, 993RS you owned a 993RS oh, I know we shouldn't say it don't 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 yeah I mean I, I owned 993RS and I loved it and do you know what it was actually it was a really nice car I bought it from Nick Four. um I was one of those idiots. You know, the way Nick used to sell cars was he'd go to the ring on one of these track days with a car and you'd go for a lap of the ring with him in the car and at the end of it, you, you know, b b before you were basically you know, out of the foxhole, you'd bought the car. <laughs> um, and, and that's what I did. And it was a beautiful um, yellow, um, completely standard car, never been crashed. Um, but I wanted to do some racing. Um, and I didn't have the money. All the money that I had um, was tied up in the 993. And so I sold it and I bought a Camaro and I raced that for a couple of years and couldn't afford to do that anymore. And then, yeah, I didn't have a 993 and I wasn't racing. Um, <laughs> <no>. <laughs> we got some more positive stories coming, hopefully. I was trying to think the other day, what's the best car that I road tested when I was at Autocar? And... Trying to define the best car is a bit like trying to compare cricket batsmen in different eras. It's very difficult because circumstances change and the significance of a vehicle needs to be viewed in the con context of when it was launched. But I've got a pretty good idea of what I think was the best car I road tested now, looking back. Because I drove down the same road that I first drove it on the other day and I, I was in a very modern car and it didn't feel as good as that car did 20 years ago. Go on. 
Ford Focus is the best car that I road tested. Original standard. The original Focus. standard 1.8 Focus yeah. was just staggeringly good. Yeah. I'm, I'm still suspicious of how good the dampers were on the car. Yeah. That there was because there was all sorts of jiggery pokery going on. But that was back in the day. I mean, you know, Ford has quite rightly carved itself an enviable reputation for, you know, making even its least um if you like driver focused car still fairly dynamic but it, but it, it came from that and before that the Mondeo as well um because if you remember the stuff that they produced before that you know the Mark 4 Escort the later generations of Sierras I mean this was just so much rubbish I can remember on the Mondeo launch um it was one of those weird launches where you knew the car was going to be good before you even sat in it and that's not me judging it um ahead of the event it was because Ford rang up and said if you want to bring any rivals down, we'll transport the lot for you. <laughs> now, you don't that's do confidence. That, you don't do that if you're not reason. And, and usually, if you've gone to Ford launches before that, you know, if you got to talk to anybody, it would be some well-briefed marketing bloke who just talked bollocks to you. And back there, there were just engineers everywhere, clearly um, with no media training at all, who would just talk to you about this car. And long before you thought, you know, if this car turns out to be rubbish. I mean, they have played an absolute blinder. And of course, you got in the car and it was it was totally game-changing, not just for... Was that 92? 93. 93. January 93. And what... Well, you did something stupid. How many miles are you doing in a week? Oh, okay, yeah, so that. Um, me and... Well, okay, so the original plan... I devised a plan to do 10,000 miles um, in a week. Uh, it was just a nice round figure. And we thought if we divided it up into teams of people who would each have the car for 24 hours, um, then not only would it do it, but the car could go to some quite interesting places. And so there were a load of them and it went off down to Portugal and back and then it went to Italy and back and one bunch of people decided to try and do 10 countries in 24 hours. And so it did anyway, the problem was they all did their jobs a bit too well. So by the time the last leg came along, we had 24 hours and this was Steve Sutcliffe and me. Um, we had 238 miles to do, which would have taken about three of the 24 hours. And we just thought, well, this is no way to end it. This is, this is no kind of story at all. Um, and so I don't know which, it was probably, knowing the bloke, it was probably Steve. Steve said, well, why don't we do 12,000 miles? And, you know, clearly that was nuts. But, you know, Steve isn't the sort of person to duck away from sort of such a challenge and uh, I, back then I don't suppose I was either and this was a 90 horsepower 1.6 Mondeo it was the cheapest lowest power Mondeo you could get and we got in it and we made it to Lyon from Calais in four hours we saw we were at the sea before within six I think we averaged 108 to the south of France <laughs> that's including fuel stops I mean you know I, I should probably say some kind of sort of hygiene notice now that, you know, I don't, you know, I, I don't, I, at the time it didn't strike me as being a particularly good idea and I would never, ever behave that way um, now. But at the time you're young and you're stupid and, you know, and you've got a job to do and it sounded like a great story. So, you know, rightly or wrongly, we did it. Um, and we did 2,326 miles in 24 hours in a 1.6 Mondeo. Um, and the thing that nobody, only Steve and I know to be true, um, and I think our mates who know us know it to be true, but I don't think the thing that anybody believes is that we did it with 90 seconds to spare. We got over the line with 90 seconds of the week left um, is when we did the 12,000th mile, uh, and that is absolutely true. And there were entire tanks 
you'd come out of a service station and you'd redline it through every gear and put it in fifth and you'd put your foot down. And unless you copped a payage, you wouldn't lift until the next time you had to refuel it. We got it to do 14.1 to the gallon. <laughs> um, and it burned, in that week, it burned one and a half times its own weight in fuel. It's weird, isn't it? Because I love, I love hearing the stories. But in the context of our careers as they are now, it would just be viewed as waste, wouldn't it? Why would you use so much fuel to go and do something like that? It's because really it's, strange. Because it's a great story. And the fact that, whatever it is, 26 years we're later, still talking about it. We're still talking about and I, it. And I think I think that's one of the great shames of the of the modern car media environment is that video is a has opened us up to a whole new amazing world of of seeing cars sliding, of confirming the way they behave rather than just allowing a little bit of poetic license through the writer. But you can't build these stories through a film the way that the way that we used to in magazines. I still I'd still rather I still feel a more complete knowledge of a vehicle if I've read about it than if I've even if I've watched an hour about it, weirdly. I think it's also why um, when you guys are on Top Gear um, or the other mob, other mob go off and do big adventures, I think that's why they probably last longer in the memory because they are, at the end of the day, stories. Yeah. You're not just reporting facts, however well-crafted, about a machine, you're actually, it almost becomes a prop. It becomes a device. It becomes a player within that story. And as journalists, that's what ultimately we are. We should be. We should be tellers of stories as feature writers. Um, and sadly, because, you know, deadlines get ever shorter and budgets get ever smaller, there's just less scope, particularly within um, what I would describe as conventional motoring journalism, and particularly given how much of it has now migrated online, there's just less space uh, and scope to do these stories, um, which is why you know old gits like you and me sit here nostalgic, you know, reminiscing about stuff that happened you know a quarter of a century. Well, ago. the irony is, it's populating a podcast now. You see, there you go. There you go. New, new media supported by memories of old media. Yeah, the two CV. So, about five years ago, maybe six years ago, I bought a two CV. I'd always wanted one. I wanted a Mahari actually, but I couldn't afford one. Um, so I thought I'd buy an early 2CV, an AZ with a 425cc engine. Very soon afterwards, you bought one. Not because I'd bought one, because you'd wanted one as well. But it's, I think we bought one in the same year. And now we have a kind of ongoing rivalry about our 2CVs. I mean, there's a mutual respect about our vehicles, but ultimately it's a bit like having it's a bit like having a mate who's got a dog the same as your dog. You don't mind his dog, but you're pretty convinced that your dog's more obedient and all round a bit of a better dog. Um, so... And but the great thing is our cars couldn't be more different, could they? No, uh, your car is um, rough as a bear's ass, and my car is beautiful. <laughs> and but the thing is, I kind of would rather it were the other way around, because to me, the ultimate gun car, whatever it is, there was a bloke, and there may still be, who used to used to race a C-type Jaguar, and this was the roughest C-type you've ever seen in your life. It looked like it had just been dug out of a ditch somewhere, but it was mechanically perfect. And I just loved sitting in that car because every ding, every story that car, had, every experience it had ever had was written all over its bodywork. And I just loved that. And cars that look like yours rather than show queens like mine, um, to me have a character and a texture that you know, beautifully restored things, um, as my car is, just don't have. Um, but it, but but equally, yours as an object is gorgeous. And what I'm learning about mine is that as it ages, it's lo- it is beginning to lose 
you can't appeal you you can't appreciate the engineering in quite the same way because everything's got dent or always covered in rust and I'm, I'm beginning to feel that with mine now i like the patination I like the fact that that's already got damage that that i've created or we've as i pointed near we've created i mean there's a the the driver's side rear door they've got a massive dent in it because when we were recording the first film we ever did on it up in the forest of dean i was driving along trying to get do a cornering shot whatever that is in a 2cv and I got the thing up to about 46, which is, you know, close to its maximum on the straight, thinking this is brilliant. And the driver's door wasn't latched, but it flew open at oh, 46 yeah, miles yeah. an hour. And, it, and the noise it makes, because yeah. at that point, it just becomes a percussion instrument, doesn't it? And the door handle hits the rear door. Yeah, I mean, it went, nearly went straight through the skin yeah. of the door. Have you had that happen? Yeah, I've had it, but I had to have mine repaired, didn't I? Whereas you could leave yours, and it's another part of that car story. It's another yeah. great thing you and I. So can it talk happened about to you as well. How, exactly I it was the same thing happened shocking, to me. Shocking the noise it makes. The made. noise. It's, it's like someone just let off a, a shotgun. Next <laughs> Um, but no, I had, to, I had to get it. I had to get it repaired because it would have, it would looked odd, wouldn't it? It, it would have looked horrible. Yeah. So you've so you've now got a new engine, but we. Uh, I'm surprised. <laughs> okay, we're not going to go into this story because it could end in a punch up. But the ultimately, I think my car's a bit quicker. I think I might have a slightly hooky engine. It's definitely four two five cc. But there are some key factors in the fact that my car might have a bit more straight line performance than Andrew's used to. Anyhow, he's now upgraded his engine. To, he's got four stud heads. Four stud head. Very important to have a four stud head. Mine's from my, my, my engine. Uh, I do still have the uh, the original three studder. Do you? Um, yes, sitting on a bench, which could go back in at any time. But no, I do have. I have one from a '64 van, um, which is meant to have, I think, 17 and a half horsepower, as opposed to 12 a standard. As opposed to 12 a standard. Um, so Andrew and I line up on the way back from uh, a drink in the public house, a soft drink, I hasten to add, and. Um, and, you know, we test these cars by, first of all, saying we're not going to do any kind of dicing on the way home, um, but we'll just drive home. And, of course, within a minute, we're going up a hill and we're in a full race situation. But the great thing about the 2CV is you can be in a full race situation on the public highway going up a hill and you are doing no more than 18 miles an hour. So you're not affecting anyone else at all. And as we You're probably the holding hill, them up. As, well, we were. As we were, we, as we were going up the hill, it dawned on me that Andrew wasn't getting away from me. So his, he should have had five horsepower more than my engine. And, and on the way home, we were pretty closely matched. Well, I, th- I think mine might still have a slight edge. And it's this, always easier to follow. It is. So maybe I was in the slipstream and there, you know, there, there was some arrow in there. Maybe the same things that affected Sebastian Vettel affected me that day. But um, what, what we need to acknowledge here publicly is there are two factors in this. One, you're a bigger man than me, Andrew. Not just, not just morally, but physically, you're a bigger man than me. And these cars don't weigh much. And I think the fact that a couple of extra stone on you compared to me... Might might have an effect, possibly oxidation as well. Yes, I, on a, I think there are there must be ten kilograms of paint and trim in your car that just doesn't exist on mine now because it's been lost as atoms to the atmosphere. So I think if you, what we need to do, and we'll agree this in public now, is before the end of the year we're going to take them to Millbrook. We talked about Millbrook here. We'll make a film of this. We'll go to Millbrook with the two cars. I'll pay for the testing, and we will use the bowl to get realistic VMAX speeds from them. We won't be allowed anywhere near the outside lane. In fact, we won't even make it to lane three, will we? No, no. no very definitely we'll lane two we'll exercise. Use, we will use the straight to produce a full set of autocar data and we will then get the, we will get the original template for an autocar twin test from the mid-90s. But we have to do it twice in each other's cars. Yeah, absolutely. Unless we ballast you up. Well, well, well once we've gone to the Weybridge, then we can work it out, can't yeah. we? We have to answer this question because I don't understand why mine's quicker. It must mine be. should be quicker. Mine, it should be. There's no question at all because I've also got, apparently, so I'm told, a slightly higher compression head <laughs> and a bigger carburetor, although I'm beginning to wonder <laughs> if any of this is true. 
Oh, they, they are. There's something about them. I think it's the last car I'd sell. I mean, there is, but I, th I also think, um, being faintly serious for a second, I think that there is a lesson to be learned because, you know, that drive back from the pub, you and I, we've, we've been very lucky, you in particular, to have driven all sorts of amazing things. And I would say that in terms of just fun, however defined that you can have in a car, I think I've probably had as much fun cocking about with you in two CVs than I've had in almost anything else. In the last 12 months, that's the best drive I've had. And, you know, when we look forward to an age where our speeds are all limited and when our cars start shopping us to the authorities and this, that and the other, you know, I won't be that bothered because I will know there is... You know, no one's ever going to impose a speed limit that's going to trouble my 2CV. Um, and, you know, if I drive it as fast as I possibly can, it'll just about keep up with the traffic. And here's another important point. You know, if you're just about keeping up with the traffic, if you find a gap in that traffic, you know, if you drive a modern supercar, there are no gaps in traffic because you're always at the next clump of traffic because you just, it, all gaps just disappear. 2CVs, you can have the road to yourself for a day because the car behind you never catches you and you never catch the car in front. <laughs> And it's, you just spend much more time doing what you want to do, which is driving, you know, having fun on empty roads. And the slower the car is, the more likely that is to happen. Yeah, no, I'm completely in agreement. And I suppose that brings us back full circle to what we were talking about the X7 earlier uh, and and sport, and the, the concept of the 2000 horsepower electric sports car. They're all barking at the wrong tree. They're, they're, collectively, the car industry has got itself lost into some rabbit holes, I think. The, the first of which is, in sports car terms, is is this need to to show that they're replacing the internal combustion engine with something that's even more powerful. This electric motor is going to come along, whereas you used to have 600 horsepower, you're going to have 1,000, then 2,000 horsepower. But that's what they have to do, because what else... I mean, they can't make them sound better. No. They can't make them feel more tactile. Um, they know they're going to be heavier... Um, because that's just the nature of the beast. So what have they got? You know, the only thing they can do is, well, we'll make them faster, because that's the easy thing to do. We, you'd have to think that there's that at some point the next Gordon Murray's going to come along and say, it might be Gordon Murray, I don't know, and say, well, why can't we just make it lighter? Why can't we take a smaller motor, make it more efficient, and have 150 horsepower and, and, and 600 kilograms? I think it will, it will happen. You know, like anything, it will get lighter and smaller. It, it, it will, and I think that there's a lot of potential in solid state. Um, and once people start throwing away their lithium-ion batteries, uh, I think that there are all sorts of good things that come from that. Um, but, you know, solid state, it's almost like, you know, fuel cells. It's one of these things that's always, you know, five to ten years away. Um, so Haven't seen it yet. No, I think, did Toyota or someone say that they might have one next year? I don't know, but... Um, if, if someone has a word, has found a way to productionize a solid state battery, uh, and obviously this is uh, what everybody thinks Mr. Dyson is up to. I um, mean, he has bought a company that made solid state batteries. And if, he, if he's found a way to do that, then, you know, that could be very interesting. But in terms of the here and now and what we actually know, um, I think you're right. I think they are going the wrong way. You know, bigger, heavier, faster. No. You know, lighter, smaller, funnier. Yeah, I... I've couldn't agree more. And, and, and just to continue that, we, we are going through a, a bit of a twilight period of the of the internal combustion engine supercar, aren't we? Everyone seems to be knocking them out now whilst they feel they still can. And we've got some incredible stuff coming. We've got Valkyrie. Um, and following that will be a series of Aston Martins with a load of power that, that, that are in the shadow of that car. Ferrari is still, they're hybridising stuff, but they're going to launch this SF90 
with a thousand horsepower. And yeah. But and and in and in supercar terms, it's not that expensive. I mean, I know that's a preposterous way to describe it's it. It's a third of the price of a LaFerrari. Exactly. Just quite powerful. You know, and when you look at the way people spec up or, or are paying premiums for GT2 RSs, it's, you know, it's not far off. Yeah. Um, uh, and this Brabham that you've just driven as well. I mean, I, I have to say, and it'll be disappointing for some people, I'm I'm slightly over it all at the moment. I, I, it seems that every single week another crazy piece of machinery is launched that I don't know I don't know how you use it where you use it what you do with it I'm still confused I'm, by the I'm, I'm always interested in cars that do stuff that cars haven't done up until that moment uh, even if it's an academic interest I mean the Valkyrie really really interests me I, I'm just you know don't tell me that a car designed by Adrian Newey isn't going to be an interesting an intrinsically interesting thing it just is um, and I had a very close look at one um, at the Geneva show, and the packaging, what they've managed to squeeze in there, is just extraordinary, and I think it will be, you know, the McLaren F1 um, of its generation, albeit you know, in a very different way, because let's not forget, the F1 did all it would do while seating three people with, you know, decent air conditioning, music machine, and lots of lug- luggage space. Um, but it's the Gordon Murray car that really interests yeah. me. That's the one that really interests me because you know the T. What's the engine? It's a three, but no, it's a three nine or four liters, just under four liter, um, normally aspirated V twelve, six hundred and fifty horsepower, six speed H pattern, so, you know, manual gearbox. It's going to be something. Special. And a fan. Now, what I don't know, what nobody's answered, and I should just ask the question, is whether the fan is switchable because I can see how the fan could work if you're on a track. I don't know how you seal the car to the track, but I guess Gordon's thought of that. But if you're just driving down, you know, the high street, are you just not going to be spitting, you know? Yeah, there is. I'm sure. I'm sure NASA created and... some material that you can buy now that allows it to rub against the road, but it wouldn't last for long. No. Also, why? What, what questions you never thought you'd be asked? When have you ever needed downforce on the road? Well, you don't. That's why I think it might be switchable. Yeah. You know, I can see only see bad things coming from the fan on the road, but on the track, it could be quite good fun. The Brabham, the, the, the Brabham fan car. Yeah, I, I'm fascinated by the engineering and the concepts. I think the idea of driving them on the road. I mean, if you gave me a Valkyrie now to, to, to drive to Yorkshire to go and do a story, I think the drive to get to the destination would just be fraught with worry. Not yeah, but that's, but that's not what it's for, is it? No, it's, but what, so what is it for then? It's for incredibly, well, I think it's, it's for incredibly wealthy people to say, I've got a Valkyrie. I think that's its primary purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it is for, for a, a probably quite a small number of those people to provide an on-track experience, unlike you know anything that they could get anywhere else. I suppose you could go and buy you know a second-hand P2 car um, and get somewhere near it. Um, but I don't know until we drive it. I don't think I don't think these things. I had to go in the it. sim. Did you do the sim thing? I drove no. the simulator. No. The lap time. The lap time in a in a low power configuration compared to a generic 700 horsepower car was ridiculous at Spa. And certainly, it's normally... So my radar sort of GT3 pace or an uncaught GT3 car is what I can, I can visualise a circuit at. And I, had to, I saw Spa at a different speed to that, certainly. Yes. So that was interesting. Because yeah. normally these street cars are held back to about that level of performance. GT3 is about as far as they go. Um, okay, so before we finish, just one, one thing I wanted to ask you. Um... I drove a car with a DFV in it recently. Oh, yeah. I haven't driven one of those before. And it, it made me realise that I, th- I think I need to own a DFV of some sort. 
do you think is that is that the most special engine do you think uh, yes and no. In in terms of what it did, the things that it powered, it's 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 completely un, unrivaled, unapproached. You know everything. You know it won Le Mans twice. It was in F five thousand cars. It was in F one cars. It was in supervan. It was in everything. Serious from that point of view. But as you all know, it's very much a device for doing a job. Yeah. You know it's you know it's not something that you're going to get. You know it's not a soundtrack you'd want played at your funeral. It's you know it ain't a flat twelve alpha. It's a very much meat and potatoes um, engine. I mean, fantastically effective at getting the job done. Um, and they're much nicer today than they used to be. I can imagine that modern metallurgy means yeah. they are much better. Yeah. And, also, and, and the electronics as well. And the, But they do sound... The installations do sound very different according to where the intakes are and how long the exhausts are and the way they're shaped. Certainly the Lotus 79 that I drove, yeah. the um, that was a really nice sounding one. It sounded yeah. gorgeous. Yeah, yeah. They do sound good, but you're still... At the end of the day, you're dealing with a flat, flat crane, a flat plane V8. Um, you know, and they're just not going to sound as nice as you know. Go and listen to a Matra hmm. or a V12 Ferrari from. So best sound, era. best sounding engine, Matra. Do you reckon? They do yeah. sound ridiculous when you hear yeah, them. Yeah, I think I, I think so. A flat v- twelve Matra, V12 Matra. Sorry, V12 Matra. Yeah, I think that's the. I think that's yeah of them all. I think that's the one for me. Seven eight seven B. No, no. I mean, fascinating, interesting. I mean, wow. But no, absolutely not. Uh, it's it's not a beautiful noise. You I can't you it. can't listen to a seven eight seven B and just think that that's some kind of music you're listening to. It's not. It's just. I mean, it's just an assault on your senses, isn't well, it's it? It's just air being ripped apart, isn't yeah, it? Exactly. Really? Uh, but, yeah, exactly. But I do I do love the sound. Matra, yes. I still think a flat twelve Ferrari, done right, is a is a very complicated, rich sound yeah. because it's unexpected. In a road car, particularly. Yeah. Yeah. That's the only reason I've kept that TR, probably, is I love the car, yeah. but I think and the that's engine... That's a superb engine. That, but there's, there's that nothing was... else that sounds like that. No, no. And it is a very different sound to a V12. But there is a, there is a particular sound, for me, that I... I think it's the... It, 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 you, you just described it as being the music when you played at your funeral. I love... and I will, the, the sound that will always make my... The hairs on my neck stand up more than any other is a... It's just a... A sort of anything around three liter flat six Porsche engine yeah. on proper pipes, but with with the proper injection pump on it. When that when that kind of in, induction hammer comes in, and if they're revving high between about six and eight, when they're really going, that that's an extraordinary noise, and it's that's my favourite noise. I don't, it's not it's, in terms of quality, it's not the highest quality noise. It's probably the most not the most spectacular, but it's the one that makes me just go wow when I experience it. Just talk to me for a minute about the noise of a short tail nine one seven. In oh, those terms, yeah, but it's it's a it's a that's that's why the the, the flat twelve noise is, is so fascinating for me because there's something about those opposed cylinder sounds that, that there's a richness to the noise that that makes it sound Porsche but luxury Porsche. I don't, I don't know how to describe that. So quite often when I'm in a five twelve TR driving that, say quite often that sounds ridiculous. When I'm driving one, that it sounds as Porsche as it does Ferrari to me in some respects. They're quite complicated sounds. But the that engine in that car, we drove we at Goodwood. Andrew and I both drove um, some fa- some factory uh, car museum cars just as demonstration run. And Andrew was in the nine seventeen thirty, which was just a incredible machine, and I was in a short a short tail nine seventeen, um, which is just for me was almost too much to handle. It's the car of my dreams, the car I used to draw as a child, and 
just amazing. And I think the it had talk from nowhere, just, just kept pulling, but it wanted to rev. It was completely amenable. I'm sure it's got some modern electronics that help it, but it was just amazing. And also, like all great engines, it, its sound wasn't consistent. It made different noises, uh, yeah. volumes. Everything changed as it went through its revs. And yeah. I think, again, Porsche have always done that really well for me. They Porsche engines, they, they create different noises at different points in the rev range. And that thing did just that. But the, the ultimate sound it made when it was singing beyond about five... I don't have the adjectives really. Yes, but I, but I, I would, yeah that that could be played at my funeral. Thanks. Yes, I mean the turbo car is makes an amazingly um, rich sound, and because of the potential that comes with it, um, it is part of an incredible experience. But there's no question at all that whether you're talking about um, a nine eleven or a nine one seven, normally aspirated cars just sound better. They do, don't they? Yeah, they just do. Right, I think on that note, um, I'd say a big thank you to Andrew for sitting down. We'll do this again with him, and we'll maybe even drag some of his offspring in as well, because they've got some good stories to tell. Um, uh, but go and have a look at Drive Nation. Go and continue reading his brilliant work in Autocar, Motorsport Magazine, um, uh, and follow him on social media. So Andrew, and from myself, Chris Harris, and Collecting Cars, uh, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast. And I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher. Because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait. Is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.